Education then, beyond all other devices of human origin, is the great equalizer of the conditions of men, the balance wheel of the social machinery. I truly love that quote by Horace Mann. Education, the process of learning new skills, new ideas, new ways to think, are vital to the growth of individuals and as a whole society. Unfortunately, our education systems themselves are imperfect, much like all other human institutions. In this episode, Botong Cheng joins me in discussing the flaws of the higher education system, the intersection of technology and education, and innovation in general. Botong created digital education content at an edtech startup for many years, and now works at a university in Australia doing very similar work. He also has his own blog, where he talks about a lot of the concepts in this episode. I very much recommend it. Merry Christmas. Thanks for supporting OTMW, and I hope you have a happy new year. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. Today we have Botong Cheng with us. Flew in all the way from Sydney. How you doing, Botong? Good. A little jet lag. I just arrived, uh, what, like three hours ago. So uh, I'm operating on uh, no sleep right now, <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to this podcast. Hopefully I'll be able to explain some of uh my views on uh, ed- modern education mm. it's a long flight huh yeah it was about 13 hours from sydney those flights are pretty bad those sydney la flights yeah i got zero 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 sleep on that flight Wh- how, what is your approach to long flights generally i'm pretty good at sleeping if especially if it like coincides with my um my regular sleeping patterns but yeah. it just happened that this particular flight i got on at around midday Australian time. And then I arrived in LA around 2 a.m. Australian time. So around like 14 hours, 13, 14 hours. And uh, that's actually been my sleeping pattern. So basically I just spent the entire of my like Sydney day on the flight. So I couldn't really sleep that well. Just binging movies and... Yeah, listening to podcasts actually as oh, well. Yeah, in preparation. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. I'm a big podcast fan. That's why I'm a fan of this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, so Botong, you you've been writing the Botong blog. You've maintained that blog for about a year and a half now. How did you get started with blogging? Yeah, so I started that blog in probably what was it probably March, twenty twenty one, and the reason I started was because um, I I essentially quit my job without without sort of like a next position lined up in March 2021 and I guess I I spent those nine months it was roughly like nine months to a year uh writing my blog instead of actually like doing any work I had a bit of savings I wasn't too concerned my parents were very concerned because they were like what are you doing you're just not doing anything just chilling writing a blog spending like I used to spend a week per article whoa to to write it because I was very I think it was a bit of like procrastination and like writer's block but also I wanted to like edit it and yeah yeah so mm. that's how I started blogging in March 2021. It's a great blog. Check it out if you haven't already. Botong.id.au. Yes, botong.id.au. Okay, yeah, for sure. Check that out. Yeah, I actually read most of those posts. I, I felt like they were really solid. And a lot of them are related to, I mean, if I understand correctly, it is really about education and technology and how they intersect. And you work at a university yourself. So at some point you decided, or you thought that, that topic was interesting enough to create a blog about it. When did that start out for you? Was that when you started university? Yeah, I guess sort of segueing on the back of like, why did I start the blog in March, 2021? Um, so ever since, I think, when did I start? Probably 2015 when I was still in university. Oh. I started working at a s- startup, an ed tech software startup called SmartSparrow. And uh, sort of spent around six, six and a half years there. And then in 2020, the, at the beginning of 2020, we got bought out by a very large um, education publishing company called Pearson. It's like the world's largest textbook publisher. They're really big in America, mm. uh, where we are now. Um, and I really wasn't enjoying my time there. That's why I decided to like quit in March 2021. And so, yeah, that's, what, that's when I started my blog. Um, in terms of when I actually got interested in educational technology, I think it was 
it was right around probably 2014, 2013, maybe when I was still in university. You know, I studied like sort of commerce and um, economics in university and um, at, at U- University of New South Wales, which was probably, you know, one of the best universities in Sydney. Yes. And I think one of the biggest things I was surprised about was probably, I'd say like the quality of teaching in terms of as a percentage of the courses that I did at university, I'd say probably like 30% were like pretty decent. 30% were middling. And then there were, there were like 30% probably who were like really bad, really low quality courses, like courses where maybe the lecturer wow. had been delivering it for like 20 years. He didn't care. Um, you would say only 30% of your courses were good because the University of New South Wales is one of the best in Australia and it's ranked very well globally. It's the 40th roughly. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely one of the best, especially for business, the business school, um, especially in Australia, I would say, especially in Sydney, for sure. But yeah, I'd probably say only 30%. Like, for example, I'll give you one example. I remember my first year stats course, that lecturer, we had a tutor, uh, sorry, we had a lecturer for 13 weeks, and it was like two tutes, uh, two lectures per week. And I think I, I fell asleep in probably... 11 out of the 13 weeks the wow. the only two weeks i didn't fall asleep in that lecture was week one because it was so exciting it was like the first <laughs> week and then week 13 when he was talk telling us about what oh, was going to be exam i genuinely fell asleep and so did a lot of the people inside the lecture because that man probably wasn't he just wasn't he was really phoning it in <laughs> um you know like reading off slides just really unengaging stuff that's a very classic problem of a lot of university courses though just because they're great researchers doesn't mean they're great teachers i've found and they do recycle slides or they read off slides and it's it's odd because when you do presentations in high school that's 101 you don't read off your slides but they still face that problem yeah you definitely have this problem which is like i think the core assumption in many universities is probably broken in the fact that people think that if you're a really good lecturer you're going to be a really great teacher but often uh and we've known this for like i don't know i'm sure educational research has already proven this for like decades which is that experts don't really remember what it was like to be a novice so they're often the worst teachers because they're explaining things as if you should just understand them because they understand and they've forgotten what it felt like to be a novice. So what you want is you don't really want to be learning, especially in, at the undergrad level, if you're a novice, you don't want to be learning from a PhD who's been in the in the group for like 20 years in that area. You really want to be learning from maybe someone who's one or two steps ahead of you. So in that stats course, for example, um, one of the, the best parts of that of the university was Someone created a, um, a student group where sort of like third or fourth years would teach first and second years and they'd tutor them on what you would need to sort of like what are the key concepts in this course and how like what are the key things that are likely to come up in, in the exam. And that was actually the best part of that course. Right. It wasn't the lecturer with 20 years of experience. Uh, it was the third and fourth year students who still remembered what problems students had. I see, I see. I guess your complaint for this stats course was specifically the lecturer. And you also talked about the majority of your courses, I guess 70% of your courses, you did not really enjoy because of, I guess, deficiencies. Was Did you feel like technology could have supplemented that experience for you? You think technology could have played a bigger role in making those courses better? Yeah, at, at the time, I think, especially when I was still in uni, I probably had like a very optimistic view of how technology could come in i had this view of like you could just bring in sort of intelligent tutoring systems and every student would just go and run through these intelligent tutoring systems and they would sort of recommend to you what topics to revise on next and stuff like that you know as i've sort of had more experience in the field like i recognize that probably just having a technology only solution is also not the, the it's not the sort of right path forward and this has kind of been proven by sort of like the history of uh, MOOCs, for example, which was like this idea that we could have these massive open online courses where we would just open up our uh, enrollment to millions of students and they would come in and sort of uh, access the same quality of like learning materials that like a Harvard or an MIT or Stanford would get and that students would like l- learn by themselves, which is sort of proven to be false. Um, but I right. do think... Sorry, you don't really believe... You don't love MOOCs, I guess? You don't believe in them? Because they are huge now. 
I think in 2020, there was 60 million people that signed up for a MOOC. Uh, it peaked during COVID, but you, you sound like you're not a huge fan of well, MOOCs courses. It's not about me not being a huge fan of MOOCs. It's the fact that I think MOOCs have been proven to be pretty ineffective. The biggest problem with MOOCs is that they just have incredibly low uh, completion rates. I've seen statistics out of all like students who sort of sign up to the MOOC. I think the completion rates are probably on the order of like one to five percent. Wow, that's very low. Yeah, that's for all students. And then even among students who are, I think, a bit more verified. So like students who've paid for that MOOC, maybe paid $200, $500, whatever it is. Even out of that cohort of people, I think the completion rates are 40 to 50 percent. So... Yeah, there is some benefit in kind of opening up these courses to anyone who wants to access them through the internet. There's probably like, you know, someone who's really smart in India or Bangladesh who's probably getting a lot of benefit out of it. Um, But in the end, it's not really solving the core of what the university is doing because students are just not kind of completing them. What do you think the core of university is doing? Getting students to complete courses? getting accreditations yeah well there's kind of like a few ways you can slice it um i think there's kind of broadly i always think of it as like three different areas one is like the learning the other part is sort of like what i call accreditation or like a tournament aspect and the third is like the social networks and the people that you meet at university and out of those three in terms of the percentages i would say probably learning people do learn things at university there's like uh knowledge that's being shared but i'd say it's probably roughly only like 10 percent of what people actually get out of it Mm. um i think accreditation is probably closer to 60 percent like the vast majority of it is accreditation um because like the the irony is that the a huge part of getting into university uh, oh, sorry. The huge part of the benefit of university as a whole is actually just getting into the university to begin with, right? You have these like super selective entrance rates into university. So for Harvard, they're really proud to say, look, we only accept 2% or 3% of the our applicants each year. And that that essentially is the value of the university, the sort of um, the filtering that occurs right at the beginning. Right. Okay, so I really liked this specific blog post because i think it's kind of controversial you called it university is all about ranking people and i guess this is what we're talking about here the accreditation part of it and you said the value of this degree is largely derived from the brand of the university and a computer science degree from uc berkeley is more valuable than one from the university of missouri yeah. and one from the Con- the university of Carnegie Mellon, cmu is better than one from uc berkeley yeah so that was what your entire blog post was about yeah exactly talking about these kind of three different uses for university whether it's about learning whether it's about i don't just want to call it credentialing but sort of like this filtering aspect and then the other is sort of like uh the social networks and the people that you meet but i i do think it's it's quite obvious that it's all about sort of the filtering aspect uh, and that's probably the most important thing and this isn't i use to be fair, I used some universities from America because I thought that that would probably appeal to a wider audience. More people would understand it than, say, if I used some Australian universities that people wouldn't really understand. But this is even true in, in, in countries like China where I think this is sort of like a, I don't want to say like a dirty secret, but people always view like sort of Chinese and Asian education systems as incredibly selective, right? So like getting into university is really hard. Mm. We've heard from like our parents who kind of came from China uh, about how hard the like goal call, like the final high school examination is, yep. right? Um, but once people get into university, in, especially even China, uh, people don't really care the stories of people just, you know, really like copying answers. And it's, it's really not about the, the things that are actually be being done in the university. It's all about getting into university in the first place. Right. Yeah, I think that's quite surprising the fact that whilst it is so hard to get into some of these Chinese universities, they actually don't rank very well globally because I don't think the research that comes out of them or the education that they actually provide is at that standard that it takes to get in. So I think you're very much onto something. But do you think this applies to essentially every accreditation ever? Because you can get engineering certificates and things like that 
Do you think it's all about ranking people? I think a large proportion of it is ranking people, especially when you get like an oversupply of people in some certain area, then you're going to have to filter on, especially at like a very crude level. Like if you think about from a HR recruiter's point of view, if they have like hundreds or thousands of applications, they do have to filter in some way. And often it's by the the sort of prestige or the perceived value of that institution that is actually given that accreditation. A lot of these ideas, frankly, are not even mine, right? Uh, I, I've been sort of like heavily inspired by um, Peter Thiel's ideas around education. A lot of things I, I'm saying are just kind of re- repetitions of what he said before. I, I think he has a really interesting thought experiment, which was that like, you know, if you were the sort of administrator or the vice chancellor at one of these universities, you know, you wanted to, uh, for some reason, you wanted to uh, just unify a group of like alumni students and faculty to absolutely hate you and come after you the 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 thing you would do is you'd want to you know go out there and release uh release a uh, press release that says you know because we're a great university we're going to double or triple or uh you know 4x our enrollments next year because people know that in the end it's kind of like the value of that degree is the perceived scarcity of it right it it devalues the degree exactly yeah right do you think it's an effective way of ranking people though because i would say that getting into university and getting that degree is a reflection of your work and so is your gpa the the actual mark that you get with your degree is also very important right on your resume you might have gpa gpa is an american term mm-hmm. but you would have your wham in australia yep. you got a distinction or something for this degree do you think this is an effective way of ranking people or do you think this system should be in place one way to think about sort of the effectiveness of uh the ranking of a university credential is to think about the proportion of the population or like the student age population let's say like 16 to 24 who are attending universities and i think if you go back sort of 40 50 years the proportion of people who are attending university was much lower and that was when the value of a university was way more obvious. Now that a lot of people have university degrees, I think you hear about this in America more so. You hear a lot of people who uh, are working jobs as like bartenders or service people who when they're kind of applying for these roles, they have to have like bachelor's degrees. Whether a bachelor's degree is actually required to actually be a great bartender or to work in a service industry, I think it's kind of questionable whether that's important or not. Um, and so you kind of get this sort of, um, I guess you call it like the accreditation becomes devalued because, you know, let's say, I think I looked it up in, a, in Australia, I think it's around 40% of the student age population is um, uh, doing some sort of learning uh, at like a higher ed institution. And I think it's quite concerning that like more and more people are pushed in the system And as more and more people get pushed in the system, the sort of marginal benefits of that degree is less and less. Um, Because I think we, when we, whenever we talk about education, we always talk about it in terms of um, it's a sort of um, people focus on the educating part, like the increasing knowledge part. But really, I think the system more often not is about this sort of filtering and this mechanism, this sort of like tournament style mechanism. And so the more people you throw into it, they're not all learning. It's just like before you had a tournament with maybe 20 people and you say, here are the top three or four people. But now there's a tournament with 100 people. But in the end, there's still only like three or four like top positions for those people to run into. Right. I, I think you're spot on in that the number of people going into higher education has increased dramatically over the years. It actually has taken a dip recently in the States. In 2020, I think 4.1% less people okay. enrolled. But speaking of this tournament system, it seems like it isn't very rewarding to enter the tournament, but also is extremely punishing to not enter the tournament. For example, not going to higher education these days, I think can be quite punishing. Because back in the day, I think you could get by a lot more with learning on the go. But now it's all about, do you have a degree? You might still learn on the go, but without a degree, you really can't get your foot in for a lot of office jobs, white collar jobs. Yeah, this is another thing, which is like, as more people enter university, you're not seeing the sort of commensurate benefits when they leave university. So I think if you look at sort of um, uh, employer surveys about whether they feel that 
university graduates have job ready skills when they enter companies as grads straight out of university the survey results of that are, are incredibly low and people continue to say that university graduates are not prepared for the job market when they leave university and so yeah i think it's it's sort of really concerning again there's all these kind of different things i think that kind of get glossed over when we talk about university we we sort of focus on the things we'd like to focus on we like to focus on the sort of the quality aspect the fact that like if you go into this system then you know maybe it's it's a great opportunity it's an equalizer for everyone to kind of compete on the same level which is probably true um but then we kind of ignore all these other parts where the system isn't quite working so well Right. And I think the system doesn't work well for a lot of people. Yeah. Especially we both went to selective schools in Sydney Mm -hmm. and it seemed that that was the standard route to go. No one really thought, maybe I won't go to university. So you would go into university and a lot of people would study, I would say quite practical things though. But in university, there is a whole spectrum of courses that um, differ on practicality. You can go to university for things like modern dance or I guess philosophy is even less practical than the others. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point that you make because I'm just reflecting now that I've spent, it's been maybe eight years since I've graduated uh, high school, a bit more actually, 10 years. I'm older than I thought. (laughs) It's been 10 years since I graduated high school and I'm just thinking about some of the people who got like some of the top marks in the HSC, the higher uh, high school certificate right which is the exam that you take at the end of high school to get into university a lot of the people got like really high marks so in australia it's marked out of the highest mark you can get is 99.95 and there were kids who got 99.6 99.8 right and this it's a percentile score it's a percentile score which yeah. is insane you're in the 99.8 yeah you're in the top 0.2 percentile yeah of the population a lot of these students i, I found it interesting that um, maybe it's it's a mentality thing as well. When they get really high result, uh, high marks in this, they would often go and do the courses that required really high entry marks. For example, law or uh, medicine or dentistry. Um, and there's a bunch of these people that I know recently who've they've you know they graduated as a dentist. They did the dentistry degree. They did all this like post training, and now they're all kind of quitting. And then they're doing sort of general assembly and academy xi courses to become software designers uh. so it's always concerning when like i think the uh the people who score the highest in it, kind of this system they get sort of tracked down into these really narrow fields like medicine like law or like uh, dentistry which maybe they don't actually enjoy but whether it's their parents or their friends or just like societal peer pressure that pushes them into these sort of what people thought at the time was very prestigious careers, but it's not quite actually what they wanted to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of the, this is anecdotal, but some of the, probably the smartest people I know, actually they got really high ATARs, but they went and did like a science degree, which didn't require such a high ATAR, but it's something that they found interesting. And they sort of just chose to pursue uh, the things that actually interested them rather than uh, what, they were told should be what they chose because they got such a high ATAR. Because you often hear this from parents, right? Like you got 99.8. Why would you waste it on a deg- on a course set where you could have gotten uh, 85 and gotten in? Mm. And I think once you get into this mentality, it's always super dangerous. Right. I think it also works on the inverse that kids think, oh, I only want to study this, so I'm only going to try this hard, which I think is both negative. But I think right now what we're talking about is I, I feel like you're essentially commenting on the entrance process for Australian universities. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on the American entrance procedure, which is, I, I don't know how familiar you, you are with it, but essentially they apply for colleges. So you might apply for 10, 20 colleges and the application process is going to differ and it's going to be your SAT, which is essentially that quantifiable score, your exam marks but also an essay that you write potentially and also potentially an interview. So it's this whole package that you bring to get into colleges. Do you think that is a better system or do you like that system? I don't have so much familiarity with the the US system. Um, I I, I do think that, I, I I do think we have to like always kind of question where it's like, 
if we're going to judge you holistically as a person and sure that might be a, an interesting or a um, slightly different type of way of measuring people holistically we always have to think about what are they actually getting out of it once they get into university hmm. and i think in america probably more so than australia that there's this huge sort of like student debt problem i think the latest figures are around 1.7 trillion of, of student debt which is sort of uh i think i forgot which one of the presidents i think president george w bush the second bush he made sort of student debt not cancelable under bankruptcy so even if you go through oh. bankruptcy you can't get rid of student debt it does stay with you huh yeah so i i mean you know it's it's worse than say like a mortgage for example which i think you can cancel through uh bankruptcy right what do you win out of getting out of that process you get a huge amount of student debt and then a degree that's kind of less and less valuable and we know it's less and less valuable because more and more people are getting it. Mm. But I think it's a it's a weird sort of catch-22 because if you choose to not join the system, then that actually becomes a huge disadvantage disadvantage for you throughout your life because you don't have a university. Right. That That is the huge catch-22 that if you enroll in the tournament, it's even worse for everyone in the tournament, including yourself. But if you don't... It's just worse for you individually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, unless I guess unless you have like extremely marketable skills, or you you know you know your let's say you have very specific things you want to pursue, like let's say you want to become an entrepreneur, then you probably shouldn't go to university at all. You should just start building your business. But that's extremely difficult at the age of what seventeen, eighteen, that you have to make that decision. Yes, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. So I think this is probably one of the things that it, it's always hard for students. Like think about what we do what we say to students at 18 we ask them to choose what they want to do for the rest of their for the rest of their lives we know it's not true right because you see these people who get eight ten years into it they they do a career shift and change completely Um, but we present it to them as if it's like it's a life-changing decision you're deciding what career you want or what career path you want for the rest of your 10 years and then at the end of that you also have this huge problem where you have like student loans which are given to you so in in essence, you never ever feel the price of university until later, mm. right? So when you're making decision on which sort of course to choose, you don't really think about the price per se because in America, you have student loans. In Australia, there's something called HEX where the government subsidizes and gives you a loan and then you repay the government after you start working. Um, but again, this money only exists when you decide to go to university. Like you couldn't take this money and then go and start your own business mm. with it, for example. I think it's important to actually look at the differences in maybe America and other Western countries or other high school education systems because it's actually very punishing to take out student loans in America. People can rack up hundreds of thousands of debt in student loans. But in Australia, we have the uh, HEX program. Mm-hmm. Now it's called the HELP program. And essentially is in interest-free loan for the most part index-based and how much did your university degree cost do you remember my undergrad degree i think at the end of it probably forty-six thousand. Forty-six thousand australian that is not bad at all for a complete four or five year degree yeah university degree my one was only i think thirty-two thousand. and the beauty of it is if you don't make over $55,000, you don't have to pay any of it. So I think it's actually much more punishing in, in America. I mean, you said it stays with you through bankruptcy. Yep. So I, I do really appreciate most Western countries subsidizing the higher education system. You know, you talked about the three prongs before, which was universities offer the, ed- the to learning the- itself, but also the accreditation and the third was the network right yeah do you think that MOOCs also provide those three because I, I think that is true you do get the, I mean the learning is implied and you might get kind of this mini course actually I think what MOOCs might be better at is because the accreditation is not as strong it's not as emphasized and it's more about the learning process and the network yeah so if we're going to analyze MOOCs on those kind of three prongs MOOCs would definitely have the same sort of learning content so the learning would be would be very close to what you would actually get at a university course right they they might say you know you don't have access to the tutorials with 
like our professors who are going to really like teach you stuff. Um, so in terms of learning content, it's very similar between MOOCs and actual like real life universities. I think the signaling does have this weird aspect where a lot of the time when you're doing a MOOC, you're only doing a per course thing. Whereas at a university, uh, you're actually doing the entire degree at a university. Um, and so the sort of prestige value of the institution is way stronger when you can say, I've done all my courses at this um, at this institution rather than, hey, I just did the computer science course mm-hmm. at um, whatever, Harvard, right? CS50 is one of the most famous ones. And then in terms of the social networks, I think that's just completely not given to you in the MOOC, right? You don't get to go to Harvard. You don't get to kind of spend your time with other people who are kind of in this really tightly selected group of people who made it to Harvard. And so you, you have none of those kind of like social networks. Right. I see. You know what I like about MOOCs though is I think in a lot of your blog posts you talk about the deficiencies in technology in modern education in that it's not actually a complete, I guess, synergy of the two. It's really just, oh, the lectures are online. You can watch tutorials online and you might have online quizzes. And you're saying this is not really synergy between education and technology. But MOOCs are actually decently effective at combining the two for example whilst all the resources all the lectures are in video form there's actually pretty cool interactions like uh diagrams and uh little tools that simulate yeah i know you talked about like online lectures are not ed tech to you yeah yeah um this sort of goes back to a like a wider point which is that whenever a new technology comes along the first thing that people do with that new technology is they take things that happened in the old form of media and then put it on the new form of media. So I'll give you a quick example. When they first created sort of moving pictures like cinematography, the first thing the first thing that they recorded was they literally just put a camera in front of a stage play and just recorded the stage play as if you were watching it from like the middle aisle, right? right. So all they're doing is they're taking an old form of the media, which is that stage play, and just putting it onto the new form, which is uh, moving pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And then it took maybe like 10, 20, 30 years for them to start to understand that, uh, you know, cinematography is its own different type of media. And they, they didn't have to just have a static shot of a theater where people are like stage actors on a theater. They could start to, you know, record people and then cut together clips or add music or have moving cameras, right? So this whole idea of um, sort of whenever a new media comes along, they just put the old media onto the new media. Uh, I'll give you a second example. The first television shows, right, were literally television cameras pointed at two people with mics, similar to what me and you are doing. (laughs) And they were doing radio serials. Radio brought to TV. (laughs) Yeah, literally. So like people, like that was the first TV show, literally a video recording of two people talking into radio mics and broadcasting it out, right? And again, it's because they don't know what to do with this media first. I think that's what universities have have essentially done. They have this new technology, which I think is the internet, right? And the first thing they've done is just, all they do is they put whatever happened in the offline world into, into online. So what did they do? They went and found lectures and then they just recorded the lecture and put it online. Like here's a recording of this guy talking on stage, right? Or like- um, Online exams. Online exams. It's just like, here's a bunch of MCQ questions, which we would have given to you in paper form, but now you can select it. It's a radio button. Or I think the worst example of this is like learning management systems, right? You know, when you enroll into like Blackboard and you get, uh, or Canva, uh, Canvas or Moodle, Right, and you get kind of, uh, when you enroll into a course, you get kind of weeks one to 13 and you get the lecture slides. Again, these lecture slides were kind of, were used to be like paper handouts. They just give it to you and put it online. And so we know that whenever like a new technology comes along, people just, again, take the old media and just put it onto the new media. They never explore what are the kind of intricacies of what the new media is. And so if I'm talking about the new media being the internet, let's think about what are the kind of things that the internet allows you to do. And maybe later we can talk about how this might sort of like reshape uh, education 
and kind of the institutions that provide education. But if you think about the internet, the core of the internet is, and you know, this is just me sort of speculating, right? The core of the internet, it's, uh, I think a big part of the internet is around the ability to create niche communities. So, you know, in like, for example, Reddit, right? You, you have a bunch of different subreddits, each with their own subspecialty. Like I love cute cat pictures. I love soccer. Um, I love anime. And everyone has these, these special like sub niche communities, but it allows people to kind of uh, conglomerate around these really spe- hyper specific niche topics. Um, there's other parts of the, the the internet that I think are applicable to university. This idea of that, like the internet at its core is just a bunch of hyperlinks that go around, right? And so you can actually mesh together a journey which goes from text to video to audio to like an interactive and you can have all of these things just kind of mash together. I think those are kind of the areas where we'll eventually start to create educational experiences that actually exploit the true uh, capabilities of the internet in the same way that when people were making movies, the first thing they did was just film stage plays, which is boring as hell now that we look on it. Then they figured out hey, you can actually like film things and cut them together and actually create a film. You can actually move the camera around. You can have different shots. You can have like a close-up shot. You can have a far away shot. Yeah, and eventually, you know, like special effects, music, editing, all of these things, they later figured out. But the first thing they did was just record a stage play. And right. I think that's where we are at universities. That's where we're stuck at right now. Right now. But I think that also makes the most sense because the amount of investment to go into these other avenues is quite a lot, right? Because it's not necessarily innovative to just upload a lecture. It's the easiest thing to do. To create, I guess, an educational journey through technology, that requires a lot more investment. And you kind of did that at Spartanburg. Yes, those were the type of, of type of learning experience that like we were producing at Spartanburg. But I, do, I, I disagree with you on this fact that it requires a lot of investment. I don't think it requires a lot of investment. I think it requires new thinking. And very similar, a lot of people always think that it just needs more resources. It needs more money. It needs more people thrown at this thing. But it's never that. I think it's more about removing old ways of thinking and replacing them with new ways of thinking. I think technology always comes and it always takes maybe like a lag of 20 to 30 years for people to actually realize what they could do with the technology. So I'll give you another example. This kind of relates back to universities, but when factories were electrifying, they the first thing they did was, so factories used to be run by steam machines, right? So you'd have this giant steam machine at, at the basement of the factory and it'd be like, um, you'd be burning coal or whatever and you'd be driving this these steams and then this steam power would be transferred to the factory through like these pulleys. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of old factories, but essentially it's like a giant vertically stacked factory and in the middle of the factory there's this, this giant cutout so there's a hole in all the floors to allow all the belts and pulleys to go up and down to different levels and you would <clears throat> you would group machines together so you would actually like say like all the knitting machines were in one area, all the sewing machines were in another area because these all required the same kind of uh, power requirements, right? And these were all run on a system of belt and pulleys. And so when there were, when electrical, electrification was happening, these factories heard about electricity as this like wonder technology. Oh, it's going to make things amazing. Like look at what it can do. What All they did was they ripped out the old steam factory uh, machine and then put in an electrical machine in the same place Uh. and they didn't change anything else right they were still running the same machines in the same places grouped together in the same way and nothing changed there was no productivity improvement it took until i think maybe 20 or 30 years until a new wave of managers came along who had new ideas who weren't tied to the old steam factory that they started to think about moving the factory into a one long single floor because electricity allowed you to run uh, power to each individual machine as opposed to a group of machines which is what steam forced you to do so that you could construct this single floor f- factory and now instead of grouping things by the power they needed you could group it by the order of operations of a production line so then that's how they created this single the floor, production line the uh, production okay. line so again i think it's very similar it's like 
<clears throat> this new technology gives you capabilities, the first thing people do is they rip out the old thing and put in the new thing. They don't change anything else and they expect things to be different. Right. But in the same way, the universities, what they've done is they've just taken all their content and just put it online. They haven't changed the way that they're like doing instruction. They haven't changed the way they're doing accreditation. In the end, people still go to like, you know, a semester or a trimester model. People are doing exams at the end of that semester mm. trimester model, and that's all they do. So they've changed nothing else. They've just ripped out one part, which is the offline instruction and moved it into online. And again, we haven't seen any improvements from <laughs> things being online. Right. Okay. Well, I guess that leads me to the big question, and this might be a tough ask, but how do you see it being used efficiently, technology with higher education? Do you see that in the place of lectures, in the place of tutorials, or overhaul all of that completely? I think universities probably are a classic industry that is probably ready to be disrupted. And this, this sounds a bit like corny, like, oh, disruptive innovation. <laughs> but if you sort of read like Clayton Christensen and his sort of uh, in innovator's dilemma, he talks about this idea that certain industries, they overshoot their consumer demands and needs. So, uh, and then eventually a newer, cheaper technology comes along and starts to replace the functions of that existing one. So I'll give you an example with in the context of universities. If you think about what you... If I had to ask you this, out of all the expenses, let's say paying teachers wages, you know, doing like building and maintenance, sort of doing advertising for the university, what do you think is the biggest expense? Hmm, I think it would be, I'm going to assume here because I don't know the answers, but paying wages? It's actually sort of, it's actually building things, building new buildings. Oh, the infrastructure. Okay, actually that makes way more sense. Yeah. Because it costs billions of dollars to build buildings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So universities are constantly building. I, I think I'm not super familiar with what's happening in, in America, but in Australia, all the big universities constantly just build new buildings. And if you were going to say to me, I can only learn when I'm working in this sort of multi-billion dollar uh, building, and that's the only place I can <laughs> learn, it, it's pretty ridiculous, right? Right. But universities, I think, have just overshot the actual consumer needs from their students. So if you think about it, again, they've built all these really amazing buildings, but the occupancy rates on a lot of those buildings or the use of those buildings, especially after COVID, is incredibly low. So you have all this like flashy, multi-billion dollar infrastructure, but students aren't actually there. They're, they're preferring to learn at home, listening to Sky off YouTube. It's very inconsistent to me. That always puzzles me. Back when I went to university at the University of New South Wales, there were some really nice buildings. I think the solar building is extremely nice at UNSW. And the commerce buildings are so old, those lecture halls uh, at upper campus. And they would be packed. There would be like two times the amount of people in that lecture room. But then in the buildings, the new billion dollar buildings, no one was in them. Yeah, exactly. So so on one, that's one level in which universities have overshot the consumer needs. The other aspect is, I think the second highest uh, part of the university expenditure is the wages, like paying sort of these PhDs or professors to kind of lecture, right? And again, we talked a bit about this at the beginning. Students don't actually need the PhD with 20 years of experience to lecture about basic first year stats. Mm. On both ends, the students don't get much out of it because they're they're not really learning anything from a person who's an expert because the expert isn't really helping them learn anything. They're just kind of lecturing and just sort of talking at a really sort of high level. And the professors themselves don't get any enjoyment because they're not super interested in teaching a first-year stats course for 20 years. They're interested in doing research in their productive area. So again, this whole idea of you need a super expert who's had 20 years of experience in the field to teach basic first-year, like 18, 19-year-olds about stats 101 is, is also like an overshooting of the demand. Mm. Um, so in terms of where I think how technology would change universities, I, I view it kind of in, in two ways. So on one hand, there's... Uh, it's like a spectrum. And uh, on one level, I call them sort of real life institutions. And those are the traditional universities. And on the other end is what I call internet people. So those are podcasters, YouTubers, uh, even TikTokers. I'll, I'll come back to that later. <laughs> 
and you essentially have this kind of battle where each of them is trying to enter the other's space. So for universities, they're real life institutions, they're trying to move online, right? So like MOOCs are an attempt to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Even some of the university, uh, like YouTube channels, they, they try to attempt to sort of use the online channel as a way to sort of propagate themselves into the online sphere. On the other hand, you have these internet people who are really great at capturing your attention. So I'll give you some examples. So there's this TikTok girl called, uh, I, th- I think her account is called Excel Girl. Okay. And she literally just teaches you about cool things you can do with Excel, like building, oh. building dashboards, <laughs> building pivot tables and things like that. And she's starting to monetize her course by, uh, sorry, her, monetize her knowledge by releasing sort of courses and things she's selling. I'll give you a slightly different example as well. Um, there's a YouTuber called Ali Abdal who focuses on productivity and sort of uh, self-help and improvement. He has released something called the Part-Time YouTuber Academy and it's a it's a cohort-based course. It's like, I think you pay maybe two to $5,000. There's like different like levels to it. And you pay and you join this cohort course which teaches you how to become a YouTuber. Mm. And so that's not quite like related to what universities do. There's no university out there teaching you to be a YouTuber. But you can see that there's this group of sort of atomized sort of creator individuals who are slowly moving towards sort of credentialing people or like sharing their knowledge. Right. Um, And I think this group of people are going to slowly move, sort of disrupt what universities are doing. Right now, universities still control sort of the respect of society. But I think as people age up and you know kids these days they respect a really great youtuber way more than they respect their university right. professor i could say even at my level uh, sorry when i was in university you, you i'd say i respected like salman khan like of khan academy khan academy shout out yeah right you like you learn way more from khan academy oh, khan academy is great yeah than you did from your random lecturers yeah the indian computer science people of youtube yes taught me quite a lot i actually have a meme i have a like a like a board which is memes about you know it's like it'll be a meme about like your your cs professor like offers zero help <laughs> and it's like some random indian guy on youtube and he's like giving you a hug and teach you exactly what you need that's precisely it and i think uh p- kids these days are actually talking about wanting to be youtubers that's now an actual profession that people look towards so it's not no longer rappers and athletes that command i think the majority of what kids want to do kids want to be influencers now or be youtubers yeah right so you're seeing the uh i guess the internet world kind of steep into the world of education but do you think you're seeing that on the other hand well i see you can see that universities are attempting to move into the online space Yeah. yeah Um, and most of the time, again, the, the thinking as probably, you know, it sounds harsh, but like often the, the managers or like the top execs at a university, they don't quite understand the internet. When we're in university, I remember all our lecturers kept saying the word digital native to us. You guys are digital natives. Uh. And it's really cringy to us because like a fish doesn't know it's wet it's just like i'm just swimming (laughs) like we just kind of swim in the internet right right but then the professor like oh wow you actually can you teach me how to swim in the internet (laughs) or like wow you guys are actually like swimming into the internet so there's this kind of disconnect so often you know when you see sort of like universities trying to go online probably the most successful is probably cs50 from harvard okay and like that's genuinely like really high level Uh, i think they've done a bunch of things right in that respect they've they've gotten really high level, um, sorry, high quality value production in kind of the courses that they run. They have a really engaging lecturer. And then they've also started to build out like communities and build out like portfolio items. So people actually like complete the the course tasks and actually build like, you know, computer programs that people can then point to for later use. It's not quite there yet, but it's probably one of the best um, mm. examples of the universities going online. But again, that's only Harvard. Most of the time, when universities go online, it's <laughs> like not a particularly engaging lecturer. The activities are not particularly engaging and there's no community around it. Right. There's no group of learners, right? This idea of like niche, uh, like this group of sort of like niche internet uh, sorry the internet allows you to kind of create these sub niches of really interested people in a particular topic 
you don't have any attempt at doing that. And I think you also talked about certain um, maybe interactive media coming to universities where there's diagrams or simulations. You thought that would be a good avenue to explore as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just part of it. Like that, that should be table stakes. <clears throat> what, is, what is table stakes? As in like, uh, that should be, we should probably consider that as the bare minimum. Right. And I think we've been sort of, our expectations have been lowered because we're so used to just seeing a bunch of lecture slides yeah. that have been posted and that counts as like <laughs> the online media. It shouldn't be that. It should just be, uh, it should, you know, be something like Wikipedia with like sort of online interactive diagrams. And that should just be the default. That should be the content. It should be easily accessible. You should actually try to attempt at explaining things. But, you know, so often, you know, you say 80 to 90% of online content is really just the lecture <laughs> slides that have been uploaded. Yeah. And, and that's kind of sad. You can watch lectures at faster speeds. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, I guess, is one of the benefits. Not a great benefit, though. Yeah. No, yeah. I wouldn't say so. Okay. So I think this whole topic has been very interesting in general, bringing technology to higher education. But... I did want to capture your thoughts on trying to bring education, sorry, bring technology to middle school education or elementary school education because the K to 12, regardless of where you're at, I think those are very formulative years in, in that university students, when you decide to enroll into a major in university, I think you already have interest in it and you have greater discipline. Universities are not really concerned with oh, how do we keep the students engaged right that's why people can get away with recycling the same slides i think it's important but it's not nearly as important as in the k-12 where you're trying to essentially build passion for people people go into university with that passion right and then that's why we have th weed out courses have you heard of weed out courses where it's like a difficult degree like electrical engineering and then the first year course is going to be super difficult so a lot of people will fail and leave the course no I haven't, I haven't heard of that yeah it's quite a brutal procedure but they have that for certain difficult courses yeah so i i would just going back to the original question though do you see technology being beneficial for earlier education k-12 yeah i think it's inevitable that it it goes there um in some ways probably the technology at the k-12 level is probably a bit better than the one, the technology available at the higher ed level, right? Because you are forced to actually sort of deal with things like engaging the student, whereas at I think at the higher ed level, people sort of gloss it away and say, "Look, you know, if you're an adult, you should be able to just kind of force yourself and sit through, sit through this lecture or sit through these lecture slides and go through it yourself because you're a self-motivated, like self-directed learner." And I think that's probably. Not quite true. I think we're 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 way closer to children <laughs> than like the best analogy I've heard of people is like we should stop thinking of children as malformed adults. We should think of adults as basically big grown up children. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you fell asleep in eleven or thirteen lectures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not just me. Like, it's not <laughs> like I'm just a bad student. Like, genuinely, I wish you could record that lecture and you see how many people fell asleep in that. Look, I'm not super familiar with K to 12. I think it's a diff it's a difficult system to kind of sell into. We never really tried to do that when I was at um, Smart Sprout. So I don't have much experience sort of in the K to 12 space. I think there's also this other aspect, which is when you're a, let's say you're a startup or you're trying to introduce new change, I think it's way more acceptable to do that with adults than with children. I see. Because people get very defensive with saying like, you're messing with our children's education. Even if the system could be better, um, people like the opportunity cost of it is always gonna be higher or the danger in case you like sort of meddle with it. But with adults, it's like, you know, especially with my role at the university I currently work at, it's more targeted towards sort of it's even after undergraduate, not just postgraduate, but like continuing professional education. Those type of courses, I think people have more of an appetite for kind of these new ways of doing things because, you know, they're adults and they can, they're the ones sort of like taking um, a sort of informed sort of risk. If they see some value and benefit from it, then they can decide to actually do those courses. Whereas K to 12, you're almost always selling to a principal or a teacher 
and you're doing it via proxy. Like uh, no kid out there is making an educational uh, purchasing decision. If you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. They're not thinking, oh, damn, I wish I had an iPad here and I could do yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that is a fascinating perspective. I, From my brief experience with educational technology with kids, it is actually quite powerful and engaging. If you've seen some of these apps for learning languages, they are so good at capturing attention the way they keep you hooked. I don't, I don't know, that could be a bad thing as well, almost addicting, because they have those mechanisms that you get like little dopamine rushes for kids. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I think one of the most successful kids like learning software is 3P Learning, which is, uh, is like reading eggs and mathletics. That's a big Australian company. Mm. And they just absolutely own the sort of, like, I think it's more K to six market. And so, yeah, absolutely. They definitely use those, like, gamification elements. And and kids love it, right? They're learning maths better through that way. Right. Yeah, I am definitely very interested to see how, while I am super curious to see how technology influences higher education, I feel like it's going to impact lower education levels, not lower education levels, um, elementary school education, high school education, quite a lot as well. I used to teach programming to kids. And I, I think the trick, though, with incorporating technology and education for younger kids is technology is kind of hard to learn, I would say, at a young age. You mean coding? Not necessarily, just working with technology. Okay. Because I think technology always requires a little bit of onboarding. Right, it's a lot easier to read than it is to operate in an iPad or, or a phone. Yeah, I mean, to me, that sounds like probably the just whatever app that was created probably wasn't good enough. Yeah, it needs to be very intuitive. Yeah, for kids, I think. Because I always think I learned so much through playing games, but through things that weren't so intentioned. So, for example, like if you look at like reading eggs or mathletics, those are obvious apps that are meant to teach you reading or meant to teach you like simple arithmetic but i was think like when i was a kid i used to play like runescape for example <laughs> right which was this like mmo rpg shout out to all my uh, og runescape players Ooh, out there yeah. um but you learned so much in those games in runescape for example you know you would learn about like sort of how scams work mm. right because people would get scammed you know uh like they'd set up sort of like a two-person scams i'd say i'm selling an item for ten thousand dollars and then you'd be over on the other side of the market <laughs> shouting oh i'm buying that item for fifty thousand be so overpriced and they're trying to like sell this like stupid item for let's say i forget what it was but like ten thousand would be the overpriced but then fifty thousand would be extremely overpriced right and so the the player would go and buy it from player a and then try and sell it to player b but then after the player bought it from the first person, they both would log off and they just over they sold this overpriced item. <laughs> so you'd learn all these like different things from RuneScape that wasn't like when they were designing RuneScape, they they weren't saying we're going to teach kids how to spot the kind of examples of scams and how those work. But right. that's something I learned from RuneScape. <laughs> RuneScape is the the school of hard knocks. It teaches you about the real world. It teaches you about the real world in a in a low cost environment it hurt if you got scammed or if you got killed you got yeah. lured into the wilderness and killed by someone you who you thought was your friend oh yeah <laughs> but um it does probably better than actually that happening to you in you know like real life <laughs> for sure for sure all right so Bertong, as the lab rat to my new lightning question system at the end of every episode i'm going to shoot some lightning questions the first one is who do you look up to i look up to a lot of people okay um but I think in terms of the person who's dropped the most amount of like ideas into my head that stay in there is probably Peter Thiel. The, I don't know, like I don't really want to characterize him as just like the investor in Facebook, but he, he was like, you know, the CEO of PayPal, uh, the investor in Facebook. He has so many ideas, like a lot of my ideas about university, there were things that I kind of felt Right. But then when he when I watched videos of him articulating these ideas around university being, you know, a tournament structure about kind of some of the critiques of like what modern day universities are doing poorly. I think those are some of the things I, I like sort of uh, really stay with me in the back of my mind. Right. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but did he also write the book Zero to One? Yes, he also okay. wrote the book. So he also writes a book about innovation and entrepreneurism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of some of the like the most interesting ideas he has. And I didn't really recognize this, but like this idea of like mimetic desire. I, I know it's a common like theme that's kind of being run through the sort of like podcast sphere. Okay. Um, but he always asks this question, which is like, like his best interview question is, what is one thing you believe that many people disagree with you on? Or oh, that's a tough question. That's a really hard question. When you really think about it, that's a very tough question. Because you can go wrong in two ways. If you answer that question, you say something like cliche, like even what I'm saying, like, oh, I think universities are like, the Monday university system has many flaws and is kind of broken in many ways. A lot of people actually like think that in the back of their heads. A lot right. of people would agree with you. Right. So then you kind of failed the question. Yeah. If people agree with you, you failed the question. Right. And so it's a weird thing. It's like, if you answer that question correctly, you want people to disagree with you on that. And then the thing that's holding you back in that sense, it's, you know, there's always, we're always kind of filtering our thoughts to make sure that people kind of agree with what we say. So yeah, that's one of the hardest things right. he's he's got. And the other way you can go wrong is you say something completely dumb, right? Mm. That is just not valid at all. Yeah, like, oh, uh, the moon landings were faked. Or, yeah. Or like they never landed on the moon or something like that. Mm. I really like that question. I think thought that is not generic. Any thought that is not very generic requires a lot of thought. Because if you were just to think about university and sit down, you would come up with a lot of things that other people share to be correct. Like you would have to know a lot about university and the higher, edu higher education system to come up with something that is both pretty valid and controversial and very controversial. Yeah, it's and some of these things as well I've noticed is like when Peter T was talking about these ideas in like 2012 2013 they were controversial at the time now more and more people are kind of you hear them repeating the same things about talking about student debt uh, about sort of the value of the university being in the sort of like tournament and the filtering and the kind of competitiveness among people rather than the learning a lot of these ideas are like more and more widespread so it's one of those things that something could have been controversial 10 11 12 years ago and now they're not okay yeah cool. all right lightning question number two i guess specific to this episode do you have any advice for kids going into university or thinking about going into university now oh that's a very good question it is hard because i think it's also a maturity thing I, my advice would be to really think about what you're doing whether you tr truly enjoy it or whether you're doing it because of other reasons, whether it's like prestige or your parents telling you to do this. So for example, like my personal story, I did law for a while because mm. after the first year of university, I got enough marks to kind of get into the law faculty and my parents were so happy, like law is such a prestigious thing. I absolutely hated it. That one year of law, I was just like the world's worst student at it. Um, and you and everyone has this, right? There are subjects that they feel like super comfortable with. They really love. It doesn't even feel like work to them. For me, that's like things in accounting or like investing business, things like that. But law was just an absolute grind and I hated it. I remember I, when I quit that day, that was probably... So when I transitioned out of law, I transitioned back into commerce and economics. Uh, sorry, com yeah, commerce and economics. I that was one of the best days of my life. I feel like oh. it was one of those days where genuinely I like took control of my life. Mm. Um, and I feel like I, I've seen a few friends do that as well. Like I have a friend who um, recently quit his job as a civil engineer and he tr trained to be um, a software designer. And again, I'm not just saying software design is like the end all and be right. all. I know you're a software <laughs> engineer. Um but it's again, it's the first time I felt in his life that he actually went and like took a decision by himself rather than constantly being um, influenced by what he thought others should, what he should do based on what others uh, had told him. Right, right. That's a, it's very difficult advice to give though. It is to say, oh, try to make the decision completely by yourself. Because you have, as a kid, you're, you're so impressionable. You have so many influences, but that is good advice. Yeah, yeah. It sounds so cliche, like do what you truly love. <laughs> um, and sometimes some people don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, the university is also a good way to gauge that, 
I would say. I would disagree with you there. You don't like that? No, I, I think... I think university, it's like one of those things you don't quite know what you want to do at 18. So you make a decision and then it kind of stops you from having to think about it for another four years until after you graduate. And sometimes those people get really concerned and then they don't know what to do next. So then they just go do a master's degree. It's kind of like you're just putting off making that decision. <laughs> that decision right. Actually, brief segue that in America, I think they might do this more effectively that the first year you're just doing generic subjects so you do get a taste of different things not necessarily they don't give you the taste of oh this is what your life would be like if you didn't do college but these are all the different avenues of college and i think that's pretty decent that you can do philosophy courses and then engineering courses and then physics courses you can do different things mm. so i do like that system but last question lightning question number three considering it's late december do you have any New Year's resolutions? This is a very good question because I'm trying to think what my New Year's resolution was this year. There are some pretty generic ones that I think you can't really go wrong with. I think my, th for this year, like the, 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 the year that's just passed, I think my New Year's resolution was something like spend money more meaningfully. Mm. Because th there's kind of two ways in which you can kind of mess up money, right? One was like one is someone who just overspends and just spends it out going out drinking like just on things that they don't really care about but they spend a lot of money on and the other one is i think more of my problem which was i didn't want to spend money because i think it was like a growing up it was a mentality thing being like a poor immigrant and you just want to save every penny constantly yeah so the i remember this year was about spending money in meaningful ways so ways in which money would actually benefit me, like going on traveling and, mm. you know, buying things that truly sort of benefit my life. And for example, you know, I'm going on this like Europe trip to see my best friend in London. So I think that was a, an example of like actually spending money in a more meaningful way. Right. Mindful consumption. Yes. I think that is, that is a great thing to aim for. Yeah. That's actually quite a unique one, huh? For a resolution. Typical resolutions are... I'm gonna read 50 books this year and I'm gonna get fit. Those are, I think reading more is the top. It's gotta be the most popular one. Or getting fit. Everyone wants to get fit these days. Everyone wants to get fit. I don't, yeah, I've never understood it that much. I've, I've never been a big gym goer myself. Ah, uh, okay. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, nah, yeah, I've never understood those, like that style of resolution, I've never understood. Yeah. Like the, I want to read X, Y, Z books. I want to go to 20 countries this year. Uh, you like shitting on like 95% of the population. No, right? I know. I, I know. <laughs> but it's such a weird, like why, why the number, the numbers, why the numbers? They don't mean anything. <laughs> this is the part. Yeah. I've never understood those, those ones. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, any last things you want to share with? The audience no i mean i've had a great time on this podcast this is my first podcast ever my first podcast appearance ever and this is coming off um 13 hours of uh of an international flight so i i yeah. hope i've been pretty lucid <laughs> no you killed it you killed it truly i i think a lot of the things that you talked about with higher education technology were extremely interesting i mean i've read every single one of your blog posts so if you've stuck around this far definitely check out the blog post uh, sorry, the blog, bodong.id.au. I'll link it in all of the resources that I upload to. Okay, well, that wraps up another episode of Overthinking in One World. Thanks for joining me and Botong Chang. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs>